It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 188 for April 11th, 2010. Recorded April 9th, 2010. To some, this week's opening segment might seem like a political comment, but I feel that it is not. This is a technological comment. It's about net neutrality. A federal court has ruled against the Federal Communications Commission's net neutrality doctrine. That doctrine would prohibit telephone companies and other Internet service providers from giving preferential treatment to their own content while restricting content from other sources, even though the service provider's customers want the content. In part, this is because the FCC incorrectly classified cable companies, telephone companies, and other broadband providers. This is a problem that can be remedied. The FCC response to this week's decision by the federal court should be to reclassify broadband under the Communications Act. Previously, the FCC elected to consider broadband Internet service providers as if they were companies such as Google, Facebook, or Twitter. Doing so was absurd because the companies I've just mentioned provide data and the broadband providers transport data. These are two totally separate business activities. The decision back then placed broadband providers outside the legal framework that has been applied to companies that offer two-way communications services, for example, telephone companies. And that is exactly the loophole that Comcast attorneys used when they took this case to court. If you think that it should be your broadband provider's option to decide that content you've requested should be delivered more slowly than content that is sourced by the broadband provider, then you don't want net neutrality. If you feel that your broadband provider should be able to block any content, even if you have requested it, then you don't want net neutrality. But if you feel that when you pay for broadband service, you should be allowed equal access to Google, YouTube, Facebook, or any other service you desire, then net neutrality is what you want. To solve the problem, the FCC could change the classification of broadband back to communications service. That's what it should have been classified initially. If the FCC simply corrects that error, the agency can then continue to protect network neutrality. So it's an issue of classification. Here's an analogy that occurred to me. Let's say there's a cornfield in Iowa. There are actually lots of cornfields in Iowa. Iowa grows a lot of corn. So do the states of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, for that matter. But this particular cornfield I'm thinking about is in Iowa. And the corn from that field is transported to a local granary where it's stored for a while. Let's say that the corn stored in that granary has been sold to a processor in Denver. Now, I don't know if there are any corn processing plants in Denver, but really it doesn't matter. This is just an analogy. So the grain processor in Denver places an order for 20 train car loads of corn. The train stops at the granary, picks up the 20 cars full of grain, The plant in Denver is the equivalent of a person who, sitting in front of a computer, has just ordered a streaming video from Netflix. Netflix loads the movie onto the Internet and sends it off to the viewer, just as the granary loads its corn onto the railroad cars and sends them off to Denver. 
So to get back to our train full of grain, what should the railroad do? Well, the reasonable person would expect the railroad to deliver the corn to the plant in Denver without delay. End of story. Under network neutrality, the broadband provider would perform a similar function with the movie, deliver it in the most expeditious manner possible to the viewer. But Comcast and other broadband providers don't want to play the game that way. If the movie is coming from a provider Comcast doesn't own, it wants to be able to slow down delivery or to charge the consumer an extra fee even though the consumer is already paying for broadband service. The analogy for our trainload of corn would be for the railroad to put the cars on a siding and leave them there for a couple of weeks, even though it has already been paid for delivering the corn to Denver. Of course, the railroad would be happy to deliver the corn promptly if the Denver processor simply purchased it from a granary that the railroad owns. Fair? Hardly. Broadband providers should not be able to impose restrictions designed to pad the corporate bottom line on people who are paying for broadband service. Comcast and other companies are not interested in protecting an open and accessible Internet, regardless of what they say. They are interested in extracting as much money as they can from you while providing the lowest level of service they can get away with. So it comes back to a matter of definition. Comcast, the railroad, would like to define itself as a data provider, the granary, when it is clearly a means of transport, not a source of what is being transported. If the railroad wants to own a granary, fine, but owning a granary does not make the railroad a granary. If you'd like some more information, you'll find some links to some YouTube explanations on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Earlier, I mentioned that some people might see this as a political comment. In part, that's because the FCC made this decision during the previous administration. That doesn't matter. It could just as easily have made the same wrong decision during the administration before that. Back then, broadband was still fairly new, at least in terms of being available widely in homes. So regardless of when the decision was made or in whose administration it was made, it was the wrong decision. Let me address that just a bit more fully and ask you to consider it this way. It doesn't seem to be at all political to me to expect that a person who pays for access to broadband service be granted access to the service paid for. This is different from restrictions on overall use. Can the provider cap the service at a certain amount of traffic per month? Absolutely. A user on a shared network who downloads 9 gigabytes of data every day is abusing the service. A user on a shared network who downloads 9 gigabytes of data, as I did recently on one day to obtain the Adobe CS5 beta release, but who otherwise doesn't abuse the service, should be fine. The problem exists when the broadband provider refuses to allow access or restricts the speed of access to sites that are not affiliated in some way with the broadband provider. That is not a question of politics. That is a question of ethics and honesty. So having made the wrong decision previously, the FCC could now set things right by modifying the previous decision in light of several years of additional experience. If you'd like to contact the FCC and let them know what you think, there's a link to the FCC contact page on the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
When I encountered FixWin, it seemed like a worthwhile utility to have on a Vista or Windows 7 computer, so I decided to give it a try for a while. The first problem I encountered was in my attempt to download it. After that, I couldn't find any problems to fix, but it's still worth your consideration. The Windows Club's FixWin is free. If you want to download it, make sure that you use the link from the page on the TechBiter Worldwide website. At least one application with a very similar name, WinFix instead of FixWin, is reported to be a Trojan application. This isn't a new trick, of course. People have been distributing malware this way since the early days of personal computers. FixWin offers to repair 50 common Windows annoyances. These are listed under five tabs on the program's interface. Windows Explorer, Internet and Connectivity, Windows Media, System Tools, and Miscellaneous Additional Fixes. These are all problems that have relatively simple solutions, but FixWin places all of the solutions at your fingertips. But you need to beware the download. The FixWin download page offers downloads in a banner ad at the top of the page and in a column at the right. You'll see examples on the TechBiter Worldwide website. These are downloads for a similar-sounding application, but the ads were placed by Google. I immediately knew that these links were not the ones I wanted, so I read the text on the page. Further down the page, I thought I had the right link, but when I clicked the icon, I was offered an installer program. FixWin doesn't have an installer. Then I realized it was the same ad I'd seen at the top of the page. The actual download link was even further down the page and tiny. Tricks such as this once again call into question the ethics of Google. After all, Google placed the ads on the page. And I know that I will never download Fix Windows because of that company's questionable ethics in placing an ad for its product in this manner. In short, I consider it all but unforgivable. That is, however, not a reflection on FixWin. Having downloaded FixWin, I dropped it onto the desktop and ran it. It suggested that I run the system file checker, a good idea, and then create a restore point before doing anything, also a good idea. I did both of those. I was told there were no problems found, so all of the system files were intact. Next, I selected the option to create a restore point. And when that was complete, it was time to test the utility. But there was nothing to test it with. FixWin doesn't examine the computer to find problems. You have to know what the problem is, and then select the Fix button for that problem. So what problems might it fix? Well, maybe the recycle bin doesn't refresh correctly or has disappeared from your desktop. Or maybe the context menu is missing in the Windows Explorer. About 50 such problems are shown, and if you find one that applies to you, you can click the Fix button. The problem might be fixed. Because I didn't have any of the problems, I couldn't test. Even so, when I tried to close the application, it told me that it would need to restart the system so that the changes could take effect. There were no changes. I didn't reboot the computer. The bottom line on FixWin... Well, it would be a useful tool for anyone who doesn't know how to fix basic problems. Even overlooking the download challenges, FixWin doesn't seem to have a lot to recommend it. Power users will just head to the registry or the control panel to fix these kinds of problems. Those who are uncomfortable with either of those might find FixWin to be quite useful. So, for that, I'll give FixWin two cats. And if you'd like more information, you can visit the FixWin website. You'll find a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And be sure to use that link. Trying to find this site by using Google could be hazardous to your computer. 
With the Adobe Creative Suite 5 train preparing to leave the station on Monday, April 12th, the company is continuing to provide updates for the CS4 version. At this point, everything about CS5 except the release date is under wraps. But if you use any of the CS4 applications, you're probably going to want to obtain the latest updates, at least when I'm able to tell you about them. The public beta of Lightroom 3 is available to anyone who wants to download it, but version 2.7 has also been released. Adobe has also released Photoshop Camera Raw 5.7, DNG Converter 5.7, but these are release candidates. They are updates for those who use the Camera Raw mode, and they support a long list of new cameras, including the Canon EOS 550D, the Sony A450, and the Olympus EPL1. I've mentioned release candidates before. These are somewhere between the final beta version and the final release to manufacturing code. The release candidates are well-tested, but, as Adobe puts it, they would benefit from additional community testing. Adobe encourages photographers to try out the newly added RAW file support in this update and provide the product team with feedback so that they can create the highest quality experience for customers working on a variety of hardware and software configurations. Photoshop Lightroom is an application for professional photographers and for serious amateurs. I have been looking at the version 3 beta, and now would be a good time to download it for an extended test period if you're at all interested. The Lightroom 3 beta download is available from Adobe Labs. You'll find a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And Adobe CS5 announcements are coming soon. Until Monday, the only substantive information I can provide is April 12th, and release date will be announced. Without revealing more than I'm supposed to, I think I can say that I've said, wow, more than a few times in looking at the beta. In the past few months, I have signed a number of non-disclosure agreements with Adobe. The NDAs specifically say that I can obtain advance information on the products, but that I may not discuss anything publicly that isn't specifically approved by Adobe. So far, what's been approved is April 12th and release date to be announced. Fair enough, though. Entering into such an agreement allows me to see the software before it's available for purchase, and it provides access to some of the Adobe product managers who have guided the effort. Although I haven't yet had time to fully dissect the new applications in beta mode, I will be able to tell you more about my first impressions on Monday. I'll be doing that via TechBiter today, not on the normal website. You'll find a link to TechBiter today on the TechBiter Worldwide website. To pull back the wraps just a little bit, though, I thought it might be useful to describe the process that Adobe and its public relations agency, Edelman PR, use to share information with technology reporters such as me. Edelman is often named Agency of the Year by PR Week magazine. This happens frequently, year after year. And there's a good reason for this. It's probably why Adobe selected the agency. For example, answers often arrive just minutes after I've asked a question. And if the answer is, we're looking into this and we'll have an answer tomorrow, they almost always have an answer tomorrow. The whole process involves making the CS5 beta applications available for download and providing sample files that can be used for experimentation. Those are sent by mail. The download is 8.8 gigabytes. That takes a while. Of course, this process ensures that Adobe and Edelman will communicate to tech journalists what they feel are the most salient parts of the upcoming release, But many of us, over the next few weeks and months, will work with the applications to find situations in which the new features fail to work as expected. If this release is anything like previous versions, it's fairly unlikely that we'll find anything seriously amiss. And already I've seen several features that work even better than I might have hoped. But I'll have to wait till next Monday to say anything about the Fieselbeaster feature, the Zagnagit function, or the Leadblander option. 
especially that Leet Blander option. By the way, all names cited here have absolutely nothing to do with any existing or planned features, functions, or options, at least so far as I am aware. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.